0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Light Reading Podcast. My name is Phil Harvey. I am an editor here at Light Reading.
1: I'm Kelsey Zeiser. I'm also an editor at Light Reading.
2: And I'm Brian Lavallee. I'm the Senior Director of Submarine Network Solutions at Siena.
0: Brian, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for your time today.
2: Very happy to be here, and I'm very happy to talk about the subject. It's always of interest to me, Submarine Networks.
0: Oh, totally. What? Uh, first of all, a, little, a bit of bio. How long have you been at Sienna? What's your background?
2: Um, I've been at Sienna for over twenty years, and my career has sp- spanned multiple functional roles from R and D to product line management to um, uh, marketing, where I am today.
0: All in the uh, concentrated around long haul networks and submarine cables. Uh, no, actually, I.
2: Um, I mean, I. I'm responsible for submarine networks, but the, the team I have, uh, I lead a team and we're also responsible for things like virtualized uh, networks, uh, 5g, uh, fiber deep, which is a cable MSO initiative, uh, yeah. various parts of the networks from access to submarine and pretty much everything in between.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. So submarine networks. So the, uh, the first, um, kind of interaction that we had, you know, we, were, we, have been trying to sync schedules forever. That's largely Kelsey's fault because she's famous now and she's really hard <laughs> to pin down. Um, but I'm we glad were... I waited to
1: take a sip of coffee. <laughs> like,
0: <what? laughs> we, we've tried to sync schedules forever, but we were going to talk about, and we still should talk about, um, the, uh, situation in Tongo where there was, uh, you know, a cable cut that, was finally repaired, I understand, but it, it took them completely off the internet for weeks. Uh, I don't remember how many weeks. It was like four weeks, right? Um, just about five weeks from January fifteenth to
2: about February twenty first, twenty second, depending what time zone you're in.
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah, it was an under under uh, undersea volcano. Uh, you know. B- massively disturbing event <laughs> for, for all kinds of reasons. Uh, but, you know, as far as their communication access, their critical communi- communication access, um, it severed the cable, uh, the submarine cable that provided them internet and, you know, uh, communications. What, um, what actually happens to a cable and it, or what happened to the cable in this case? How did it actually um, become broken? Because I'm trying to think of like, you know, an underwater volcano. Obviously, there's a lot of seismic activity and movement. Uh, What what kind of happens to the infrastructure at that point?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. Probably maybe start with a little bit of background of Tonga itself, because that's, you know, it's very, uh, I won't say it's a unique situation. It also happened to other islands in the area uh, years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they're a Polynesian kingdom. They're made up of about 170 islands and 75% of their population lives on the main island of uh, Tonga Tapu. I hope I'm saying it correctly. And there's only one submarine cable that connects the main island, where about three-quarters of the population lives, and then it connects to uh, Fiji. And from Fiji, it connects to the International uh, Communication Network or the Internet. That submarine cable... um, was uh, disrupted when there was that undersea volcano you had the eruption and you know whether it's on land or undersea you know there's volcanoes it erupted it created earthquakes and typically when the ground shakes uh you know to that extent it creates uh, tsunamis which ended up impacting um uh, tonga itself and you know, there's a lot of damage and mayhem that ensued but it's that undersea volcano where the ground shifts and shakes you have undersea landslides uh, and it basically just severed that sole submarine cable and it disconnected Tonga from the global network.
0: Wow. Um, Fiji, by the way, is where I get my water. That is the, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's my, my only connection to the island. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, I uh, forget about the... Um... You know, the earthquakes and like you mentioned, the tsunami and just, um, you know, everything shifting is probably bigger than because when we think undersea volcano immediately, I'm like, well, won't the water cool it down? you know so. yeah, I, mean, I only took one geology course
2: in college. Yeah, so. A lot of people, will they have that perception, right? Because, I mean, right. you know, we don't live down there, but on the bottom of the oceans, you have a lot of the same geological features you have on land. You have ravines, you have mountain ranges, you have... Uh, you know, long uh, look like prairies underwater, right? Just vast expanses of flat land. but then you also have the the other more uh, violent parts, right? Mother Nature gets angry. you have earthquakes, you have volcanoes, you have landslides. So where you put that submarine cable uh, is very critical, and you know they do surveys to you know see what's on the bottom of the oceans. you know, there's even places where you have unexploded ordnance uh, from wars, right so they they see all these things and they put the cables uh, in the safest parts when they rub the submarine cables. But sometimes, you know, things happen that you did not pick up on the survey because it wasn't there, like a volcano erupting. You know, it's very, that,
0: that, uh, that's it's, m- what I was going to ask. My next question was, uh, do, do you have any idea how long that particular cable had been in place? Because that's the other thing I've been thinking of, especially with, uh, climate change accelerating and, 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 uh, you know, things are quite unpredictable now. Um, you know, maybe maybe what they thought was a, a you know, relatively undisturbed area. Uh, maybe that's changed if it's been more than a decade, let's say. Yeah, it, it's been about a decade. I mean, it
2: went RFS, that's ready for service. That's when you basically turn it up. That's the industry acronym. Back in mm-hmm. about 2013, the cable's about 830 kilometers long. So it's not that uh, very long cable, right? We have 10,000 kilometer cables connecting like Japan to the... Uh, West coast of the U.S. So it's a relatively small cable, but it's critical. And it's about, what, nine years old now? Um, so that's fairly new in the submarine space. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. How, um uh, it, as submarine cables go, for those who aren't, uh, y- you know, following the, uh, I just, I, a couple weeks ago, of course, I went to OFC. So I, I got, uh, Reacclimated to the horse race uh, of 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 how fast we can get photons, you know how fast we can get them down a pipe, and how how far we can throw them before they uh uh you know need help. Um, what what uh, speed or capacity is a cable like that, or what what's typically being rolled out, or what's typically being rolled out today, and how would that compare with what the uh, what Tonga was uh, was working with?
2: yeah it's very unique uh you know we we'd like to say that each submarine cable has its own unique personality uh it really depends on the reach the technology how far did they uh, space the repeaters which are repeaters is a misnomer they're actually optical amplifiers now but how close did they space them together and critically um what modems do you have hanging off the ends and then mm-hmm. lastly is how many fiber pairs are in the uh in the cable so You know, if you look at a traditional submarine cable, anywhere from four to six to eight fiber pairs, uh, which was seen as a lot. But now they're deploying something as an industry, SDM, spatial division multiplexing, fancy word just to say that it's more fiber pairs. So we've gone from about six on average for a fairly modern submarine cable. Now we're up to 16. So you can just do the math there. And on each submarine cable fiber pair, you can get anywhere from 18 to 22 terabits per second. So it adds up really quickly.
0: So it'd be like in the in the in the neighborhood of over 350 terabits per second in a single uh, in a single submarine cable when you when you have that many fiber pair. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are the newer uh, cables. They're just starting to be deployed
2: undersea. Most of the your typical submarine cables are four to six fiber pairs. And a lot of them in certain regions, you know, depends what you have hanging off the ends. Are these large data centers? Are they huge population Mm -hmm. centers like Los Angeles and Tokyo? And, you know, not all of them are filled up with capacity. There is room to grow. And when you run out of room to grow, you can either change out the modems on the end, but you're getting diminishing returns now. There is a hard limit of how many photons or sort of how many bits you can cram into a fiber uh, pair. And once you maximize that, then you end up going down the route of investing in a new submarine cable.
0: Makes sense. Um, in, the, in this... Uh, oh, go ahead, Kelsey. Did you have... Well, I was just um,
1: curious. I was looking up a little bit about um, the repair process, and probably, you know, maybe not go too far down this road, but I'm just curious what it what it takes to repair um, a damaged cable. Uh, I mean, it it looks like it's not at all easy. (laughs) No,
2: it's you know under the sea. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's not easy at all. I mean, there are specialized submarine cable. Uh, maintenance ships. So they deploy and repair. And there's also specialized crews on board. So uh, first, you have to get that boat or ship into the region where you think the submarine cable has been um, severed. And there are ways to inject light pulses from the shoreline out into the submarine cable, and then it bounces back. And then you can actually calculate the speed of light in an optical fiber, do a little bit of uh, calculations, and you can get an idea of where it's severed. But then you got to go find the cable because it is sitting at the bottom of the ocean, and if there was a volcano and an earthquake and a landslide, it might be three, four kilometers away from where you you knew you installed it. So there's you know you got to send down uh, rovers and try to find these things. Once you do find the cable, you lift it up into the ship. Um, the ship is stabilized, right? Because you don't want the ship bouncing all over the place. It's a ver- they're very specialized in nature. And then what you would do is you would add another piece of submarine cable onto it. You would splice it together. Then you would lower it, keeping the other end that you added. Then you got to find the other end of the cable. You would splice it, and then you would lay it back upon the ocean floor. So typically you're adding another segment to that submarine cable um, to reattach and get all the uh, fiber pairs uh, spliced together again. So it's quite involved.
1: Yeah, Yeah, quite a lot of work. And I'm glad you mentioned... um, you know, that was kind of I was wondering as well, how do you even locate <laughs> where the problem is? Um, so that sounds like a, a feat in itself. And from what I was reading, it, it, you know, said it can take up to 16 hours just to do the splicing. So, yeah, um, more more power to the people <laughs> that are, you know, fixing this. That's a quite
2: a lot of work. Yeah. And that that was part of the challenge is how soon do you send in? The cable repair ship, when you don't know if that volcano is going to erupt again or you're going to have more earthquakes and tsunamis, there was the risk of the ship and the crew that had to be taken into account. So that's why, you know, you don't race out and start um, fixing the, the the cable. First of all, you have to make sure you have the right submarine cable type on board to splice into what you're going to pull off the ocean floor. So it's assuming you have that, then you have to make a risk call of how fast do you send in the ship, taking into account will there be another eruption while the ship is in the area.
0: Yeah, that's that that was the first articles I read about the uh the internet outage and and of course the reporting that we did at light reading was was that that was the more harrowing part was sort of thinking about um you know boy of all the things I hope they get right I hope they don't jump the gun on getting out there too early <laughs> you know and, and and you know since it was such a surprise to begin with uh it seemed you know it seemed very likely that something could continue to happen. That's that that, that was the very a very uh, uh, weird reality of all that. Um, now, I, I I've been talking a lot to uh, satellite companies, you know, who are also uh, you know providing bandwidth and, and internet services, um, you know, to far flung uh, islands, rural uh, America, uh, and all kinds of places where. Uh, cable and fiber, uh, you know, aren't as readily available. Um, how does the satellite technology sort of uh, play into, uh, you know, submarine cable access? And, uh, you know, do you think we'll ever get to a, a, a point where we'll be, uh, re- you know, replacing or, or going without, uh, you know, upgrading some of these cables to some of these places that are just so hard to get to? Yeah,
2: that's, that's a question that comes up a lot. We actually did a webinar uh, not too long ago discussing, you know, satellites and submarine friend or foe. Um, we get mm-hmm. a lot of these discussions at submarine uh, trade events. So if you can have both, meaning you have a business case, to either get satellite or submarine, you always go with a submarine. Just because of the sheer magnitude of capacity you can run through a submarine cable is is it's astonishing. You'll never get that capacity over a satellite network for the foreseeable future. And that's why if you look at a submarine cable, it's kind of what, you know, in the old days we used to call a trunk. It's like the highway between two endpoints and then the on-ramps right. of that trunk trunk would be satellite networks. So if you're a small island in the uh, Pacific in Micronesia, Polynesia, and, you know, an area like that, you may not have the population and the data centers which generate all, a lot of traffic, to justify the submarine cable costs because they're quite expensive, so you go with satellite networks. Um, the new satellite networks, the low Earth orbit or LEO, this is like SpaceX, Telesat, OneWeb, these type of satellite networks. Um, they're much higher capacity than the older geostationary satellites because the geo satellites are much farther from Earth. There's that bigger latency, um, but still, if you compare the the latency and the, in particular, the capacity compared to submarine cable. There's no competition, so that's why a lot of the smaller uh, island nations who don't have a submarine cable, they have satellite network connectivity because that's what's available to them. But if you're going to connect large population centers, um, you know, maybe not a large population center, but you got some, you know, massive data centers from the content providers, right? The Googles, the Facebooks, and, and so on. Um, you'll always go with submarine cable networks because they're essentially—I don't want to say they're limitless in terms of capacity, because they're not. But compared to the satellite network aggregate capacity, there's just no comparison. They actually are very complementary in nature. Mm -hmm. Satellite is more of an access technology, right? It's an on-ramp for a user uh, or a business um, to the internet. And submarine networks is like an island nation or a country uh, or, you know, massive data centers um, connecting uh, to the global internet. So very complementary and not really competing unless you're that small island nation where, No, you got to debate and argue. uh, You know what does your budget allow you to do? Which one does it allow you to uh, go with? Mm -hmm.
1: Do do some of these? um, I mean, I don't think it was the case with Tonga, but do some of these small island nations have kind of a backup? um, You know, cable that they undersea cable they can rely on, or is satellite kind of their next? um, You know, best bet if a natural disaster occurs.
2: Yeah. Um, if you're a smaller nation, getting one submarine cable is hard enough. Getting two, as a <laughs> yeah. backup is quite expensive, right? So if you look at a, I mean, you look at Australia; it's an island, but it's gigantic, right? They got a whole bunch of submarine cables going to it. If you're a smaller island, like population wise, much smaller, um, you would typically have one submarine cable if you're lucky, or if you have the business case, and then your backup would be satellite networks. Now, the satellite networks, the geo satellite, you know, they're very very high in space, so the delay. Um, that they uh, incur is actually quite high and the capacity is actually quite low. If you have a LEO satellite network, these are the new uh, low earth uh, satellite networks, uh, much higher capacity, much lower latency. That's actually a, a very good backup to your submarine cable, but most small, small island nations have one or none.
0: Yeah, that was a great, um, that was a point that a lot of the satellite providers have been making lately is that they're you know they're improving capacity They're improving uh, latency, uh, you know, especially with more Leos in in orbit. Um, But they're, you know, compared to any kind of cable technology, they're always going to be a backup at best. And they make a pretty good good living as a backup and also doing, you know, sat phone services and uh, really lightweight IoT stuff, you know. Um, so yeah, it does seem like in most cases for corporations, they would be complementary. Um, I guess the only, the only, there there would be pretty rare instances where you'd have to choose one or the other. Yeah, exactly. Um, what's the newest, uh, kind of, you know, or what, what, what's, what's pushing, uh, uh, the industry forward as far as, uh, you know, where submarine cables are going? Is it is it just a capacity thing or is there more that can be done in terms of the development of, uh, you know, and in, in the infrastructure that goes around it in terms of the uh, resiliency and things like that? Um, because I guess the other thing, I, 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 what's, what's underneath that question, mm-hmm. I guess, is I'm trying to figure out, uh, you know, is, is one of these events a year too often or, you know, has is this, is this been happening at about that pace and we're just kind of used to it?
2: Yeah, if we look at the outages, they actually, uh, maybe not outages, let me use the word fault. So if there's a cable fault and, you mm-hmm. know, roughly three quarters of all cable faults are caused by humans. It's dragging an anchor across the seabed uh, sea and snapping one or more cables. It's, um, you know, fishing, dredging, a lot of the activities that we do. The submarine cables are actually buried and armored closer to the shorelines where it's shallower water. And then when you get out into the middle of the ocean, it's actually the size of a garden hose just sitting on the bottom of a seabed. So Mm -hmm. the actual faults are, they actually happen quite a bit around the world. It's just, you don't really hear about most of them uh, because there are backup paths. So the network will automatically switch to available paths. You send out the ship, you uh, repair that uh, cable fault and then you just reroute traffic again. So from an edge user perspective, you probably won't notice uh, any difference. And that's why diversity is a big big, uh, topic of discussion in the industry. There is no plan B for submarine cables. Satellite networks, they're complementary, more of an access technology. It's kind of a last resort if you're a small island nation. But for connecting continents like North America to Europe and South America, Asia, and Africa, it's always going to be submarine cables for the foreseeable future. So... That means not only do we have to keep investing in technology, the wet plant itself, which sits underwater, and we have new technology uh, in the repeaters, you know, putting more fiber pairs, but also the terminals that hang on the endpoints. And that's what Sienna makes. We don't make the wet plant itself, but we make the terminals that sit on either end of a submarine cable. So from our perspective, and, you know, others like us, uh, the upgrade vendors, as we're called, there's an enormous amount of uh, investment putting into squeezing more and more bits down a fiber pair. But there's something called the Shannon limit. And it's a hard physical limit, which is the maximum amount of capacity you can squeeze into a fiber pair. And we're pretty close. We like to say we're knocking on Shannon's door. That's how close we are. And we're getting diminishing, diminishing returns. You know, we used to get increases of 400% which, uh, of capacity in each new generation we're nowhere near that anymore so what the industry has done is well if we put more fiber pairs in the wet plant suddenly we have more capacity but that means you have to deploy more submarine cables fortunately most of the newer submarine cables are landing at different landing points uh on land so they typically terminate in a cable landing station these used to be buildings on the beach now it's more you know the cables run right into the inland data centers, but they're hitting the, they're hitting the shorelines at different locations. So not only is it good to have more capacity uh, with these new cables, but increased diversity is also being taken into account. Uh, you know, which comes back to my initial statement: there is no plan B for submarine cable networks. So we got to improve the technology and improve the diversity, and the industry is doing both.
0: Mm-hmm. Here at home, uh, my, my wife's name is Shannon, and when I reach the Shannon limit, it's when she's already left for the grocery store, and she's maybe there, and I just remember something that I should have added to the list, and I text her, and then the text that comes back at me is just, you know, I can't even, can't, even, can't even repeat it.
2: It's just ridiculous. Uh, What's well, interesting about the, uh, the other Shannon, Claude Shannon, he actually wrote his paper back in the late 1940s. So this was like mm-hmm. a theoretical thing. And, you know, didn't get a lot of attention back then other than, you know, in the academics because the technology we had was nowhere near squeezing that yeah. much information down fiber optics. Fiber optics didn't really exist back then. Um, the law actually applies to other communication channels. So over the airwaves, right, you know, mobile networks. In our mm-hmm. particular case, submarine networks, we're talking fiber cores. Um, but we've gone from a theoretical paper in the late 40s to we're actually seeing it today where our technician our technology is pushing the limits to the point where we need new ways of getting capacity and the answer right now is uh more fiber pairs in a submarine cable.
0: Yeah, so it sounds more strategic than than scientific in the uh in, in terms of the outlook. So what is the generation to generation what what kind of improvements are we looking at when we when we look at uh what's what what can be transmitted, you know, like say at the beginning of this year, and w- what's what's coming up in the next generation of hardware, or is that even a question uh, vendors like to answer <laughs> on podcasts?
2: Um, it's it's a question. I mean, I can give you some guidance, but again, it comes down to the actual submarine cable itself, the personality, right? And it's- yeah. Because I'm not trying to the, avoid the questioner, but it, it truly no, you, does. But you,
0: you brought that up earlier about the idea that that really it's where's the cable going and what is the cable? That's the you know that, those are obviously big gating factors.
2: Exactly, and you have you have two sets of factors that are involved. One is the business case, right? Which means how much money mm-hmm. do you have to build a submarine cable, and then you build sure. the best cable you can with that with that budget. The other one is what do you actually build into the submarine cable? So, you know, early days um, when submarine uh, cables were in the optical domain, you know, you were looking at roughly five gigabits per second per channel and you would fill up the channels until you couldn't squeeze any more in. We went from five gigabits to 10 to 40, to, you know, we're up at four five, six hundred gigabits per second on some of these submarine cables. We've actually tested. Um, You know, we announced it a few weeks ago, we did 800 gigabits on a channel uh, across the uh, the North Sea. Yeah, So it really depends on the submarine cable. It depends on what you're doing. But, you know, we're talking orders of magnitude increases. Uh, In the older days, we would have went from a 10 gigabit per second on that same cable. uh, But now we can do it at 800 gigabits per second. Now, admittedly, you will end up with fewer channels than you had before because these 800 gigabit per second channels are actually take up more spectrum more wireless, uh, sorry, optical spectrum in the, in the cable. But even though there's less channels, the aggregate is much, much higher than anything we got in the past.
0: Excellent. Um, let's see, any parting thoughts? Uh, Kelsey, do you have any final questions? We're just about out of time. I want to go ahead and wrap up before uh, before we use up all our bandwidth.
1: Yeah, was just wondering, <laughs> um, <laughs> what's the average lifespan of an undersea cable?
0: Uh, traditionally,
2: it's been 25 years. They're designed mm-hmm. for 25 years, right, the optoelectronics to last 25 years and maintain the performance, uh, the initial design performance. Um, most of the time, the, especially now, these cables, even though they're designed for a 25-year lifespan, um, they could many of them could run much, much longer. It's mm-hmm. just that's what they were designed for, and then you kind of take your chances after that because there is a design life in anything that's, uh, you know, any optoelectronics uh, product. Mm-hmm. Um, 25 years today. Uh, you know, some cables could run uh, well past that. Okay.
0: Excellent. Well, uh, thanks so much for uh, for giving us a bit of an education on what happened in uh, uh, Tonga, and also uh, just the general state of the submarine cable uh, uh, business. Uh, at the moment, um, in uh, in in the way of stupid observations, I will say "wet plant" sounds like a great name for a dispensary. Uh, so somebody <laughs> copyright that and send me uh, send me some papers so we can go into business together. Um, but uh, uh, Brian uh, Lavallee from Siena, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it.
1: Yep. Thank you.
2: Uh-huh.